So this morning, the passage is about the storm before the calm. Uh, this passage is a familiar passage, I would imagine, to most of us. Um, we're going to just take some time here and see if we can't put ourselves in the position of the disciples as they are with Jesus and what he does as this particular event unfolds. I'll just read you the account. It's in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. It's in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is Luke's account. Now, it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake, and they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing and being aroused. He rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped. And he became calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. So it came about on one of those days. Luke has brought into his narrative the issue of Jesus' mom and brothers coming to see if they can't take him back home for a little bit to uh, see if they can't get him a little bit of sleep. And, and uh, of course, Jesus doesn't agree with that at all. He's got a mission. He's got things that he needs to do. And we know from the other Gospels that 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 event occurred at a different spot than where Luke brings it in. But Luke brings it in because it fits the, the theme of what he's saying. So he goes back and he says, so it's one of those days. And Luke is making it clear that this is, he's not giving a direct, unquestioned, this event, this event, this event. It's like, he's got a theme and he's got some things that he wants to say. And so he's showing us here that it's one of those days. It was one of those days. We were it doesn't really matter exactly which one it was. And what was happening was the beauty of having four Gospels is that they each present a different perspective. They bring about a different theme and a different emphasis. And it's a good thing. We have four of them. And, of course, they're not identical, right? All four of those Gospels aren't exactly the same. There wouldn't be any point in writing four of them if they were all exactly the same. So this account... Luke is presenting at this moment. And, of course, it starts out normal enough, right? The other two Gospels indicate that this is when Jesus is preaching and there's so many people that he actually says, uh, how about if we get a boat here and just kind of back off a little bit so that we can get away from, from I mean, the pressing crowds. Everybody wants to touch Jesus. Everybody wants to just be near Jesus. So how about we get in a boat and we back out a little bit and that'll, and, and we can still speak and, and they'll hear us and, it's interesting, you might be one of those people who think to yourself, I would, I would love to be really popular, maybe even famous. Wouldn't it be nice that every time I go anywhere that people just know who I am and people recognize me and they're, oh, it's you. You might think that that would be a great thing. And I suspect for a little bit it might be, but eventually you would begin to realize that people are actually doing this for their own reasons. 
And sure, initially it might make you famous or it might make you wealthy. It might, who knows what it might do for you. But eventually you begin to realize that everyone actually just wants a piece of you. Everybody is doing this as much for them, in fact, probably more for them than for you. They want to say, I shook so-and-so's hand. You know, that might be great right up until your hand is so sore, the last thing you want is someone else to shake it. And Jesus, when he's out here, there is this huge press of people all the time. Jesus is continuously giving and giving. Everyone wants something from Jesus. We want you to touch us. We want you to heal us. We want you to teach us. We want you to give and give and give. We want to see a miracle. Show us another miracle. Where are the signs? Show us the signs. Come on, Jesus. Produce. Give. And of course, this is, this is tough. I don't care who you are. This is difficult. This is, it's hard to just be continuously giving. Now, Luke also says that Jesus is with his disciples. It came about that he and his disciples got into a boat. One of the other Gospels, Mark, I think it is, says that there are actually other boats. It's not just Jesus and this one boat that's leaving to go to the other side of the lake. There are actually other boats, as if Jesus could get away from the crowds. He still can't get away from the crowds, even getting in a boat and heading to the other side. There are other people who get in boats who are like, okay, we're following Jesus. Wherever he's going, we're going. Because you should see, I mean, the miracles he does. So... Here they go, and his disciples are going with us, recognizing that we tend to use the term disciple to be pretty technical. When we talk about a disciple, we tend to mean by that someone who is actually saved, someone who has heard the gospel, understood it, and is now a follower of Jesus. But in the New Testament times, this term disciple, lots of folks had disciples. A disciple is simply a pupil, a learner. Someone who is listening. So Jesus has lots of people who are listening, but he just got done. Remember, the sermon that just a few weeks back, he gave the parable of the soils. And the point was that, yes, I'm spreading the gospel to lots of folks. Some folks aren't really listening at all. They're there for some completely other reason. They're there to maybe see a miracle or they heard that we'd fed the 5,000 and so maybe we'll get a free meal. Or they're just kind of caught up in the enthusiasm and they're, they're just kind of there because, well, I don't know, everybody's here. And it's just this social event. And when the seed of the gospel, when the true message of the kingdom, that you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it doesn't. It, it does nothing for them. They're there. They're, they're there because there's a big thing going on. So that's one group of people. And you might look out at them and think, well, those are... Disciples, they're listening. Jesus is doing his message and they're sitting there. But they're not really listening. But they would still might be called disciples. Then there's a group of people who have actually responded. They're the people in the rocky soil. They would say that, yes, I, oh, I've repented. Yep, I, I repented because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they might even think they mean it. Well, right up until it becomes clear that the Pharisees have talked the scribes and the elders into casting anyone out of the synagogue who actually says Jesus is the Messiah. Oh, oh, well, wait a minute. If I get cast out of the synagogue, that means people aren't going to either employ me or they're not going to uh, come to my business. I, wow, that could, uh, yeah, you know, 
well, suddenly maybe my uh, repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is yeah, no. Uh, we're just going to, I mean, I wanted to follow Jesus as long as it worked out good for me. I mean, there was a big thing going on and all kinds of people were just caught up in the whole Jesus movement. And well, me too. Uh, but yeah, no. Now, those folks would be disciples too, right? They would initially even tell you. The, their third group of people would be even more. They have actually kind of grown a little bigger plant. And, but again, the same kind of thing, the cares and affairs of this life. And it comes time to choose between whether I'm going to follow Jesus or not. All these people would be called disciples. They would all be pupils, learners. They're all kind of there when Jesus is there. So he's not, he's not just talking here about people who are believers. So although the 12, well, 11 of them anyway, we can be sure, but on the boat, in the boat that Jesus is in, even the boat he's in, he's got at least himself and the 12, plus probably some others. Chances are pretty good that there's as many as 20, 25 people on this boat. It's a fairly large fishing vessel. This is a commercial fishing vessel. This is Peter's boat that he uses to go into the, into the lake and to catch a lot of fish. So this is, this is a big boat. This is, not, this is not a rowboat with five guys in it, you know, rowing across the lake. This is, this is a large vessel. In fact, it's a sailing. It sails across the lake. I'm sure it has oars if the wind dies. That's not their problem, by the way. We'll see in a second. The wind is anything but dying. Uh, so We've got all these folks, and they all want to. They want to get a piece of Jesus. Of course, they can't. They can't do that. And Jesus is like, "Okay, we need to. We need to take a break. So let's all get in the boat." And he takes a, as many, I would assume, people as they can get in this boat, and they start heading across the lake. And we know that it's at the end of the day. The sun is either gone down or is going down, and so at at, at night it's dark. And we're headed across the lake to get to the other side. So we're on Peter's boat. This is Peter owns this boat, although he's not fishing at the moment. Jesus has had him travel around with him. These are guys who are familiar with the lake. They're familiar with the boat. Uh, they're familiar with, uh, Peter's a professional fisherman. This is, he's been in this thing a, a lot. Now, the Sea of Galilee. The first time you see the Sea of Galilee, if you've, you've been over there, uh, I'm going to tell you this, but may you, by God's great grace, actually have an opportunity to see it for yourself. I, if you ever actually get the opportunity to, to do uh, an Israel trip, do it. Just do it. it is, it's just great. It, it's a really good thing. You will never read the Bible exactly the same again. And it's not like your interpretation will change, but when you read about the Sea of Galilee, you actually have in your brain, you're like, oh, okay, I've actually seen the Sea of Galilee with my own eyes. Um, it's, it's quite the thing. You, you kind of stand on somewhere, the Sermon on the Mount, not exactly sure where it occurred, but you're at a place where some, you know, was somewhere here like this. It's just a marvelous thing. So the first time you see the Sea of Galilee, you think, wow, this is, this is not big. And it's not. It's only about 13 miles long and about eight miles across. I mean, that's a pretty big lake, but it's not, it's not the Mediterranean. It's not any of the Great Lakes. It's really not that big a lake. And you can stand there and see the whole thing. I mean, if you get up just a little bit, and it's surrounded, by the way, on all four sides with sloping upward. 
the, the lake is the lowest freshwater lake in the world, 680 feet below sea level. And sea level, by the way, is only 30 miles to the west. That's it. 30 miles to the west of the Mediterranean. That's really not very far. So you have Mount Hermon, which is, oh, it's, it's a nice high mountain. Uh, and it provides lots of snow. It's to the north, and it, it comes down. The water comes down. Mount Hermon's about 9,000 feet, give or take. And so it snows up there, and the snows run down. And, and plus, the Sea of Galilee also has springs. There are hot springs that actually pour into the Sea of Galilee as well. In the summer, it develops three very distinct temperature layers, which promote all kinds of growth in the lake and huge amounts of fish. To this day, they commercially fish fish out of the Sea of Galilee. It's a place that is, continues to be abundant. The, the Galilean region is a rich region. This is all fresh water. In fact, almost 50% of Israel's drinking water comes from the Sea of Galilee. This is, this is a great little lake here. And so it produces lots of fish. It produces, it produces lots of fresh water. Uh, agriculturally, the area around the Sea of Galilee, this is the place that flows with milk and honey. This, this is the promised land. It is, just a, it is just a marvelous little spot of real estate on the face of the earth. Of course, the water runs out of the Sea of Galilee into the Jordan River, and it runs down the Jordan River all the way to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place, uh, lake, on the face of the planet. It's 1,400 feet below sea level. And, of course, by the time it gets down to there, everything has evaporated out of it enough that, that it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. It's dead. It's, it's, uh, the salinity is super high. Um, and nothing is living or growing in there. So this is the lake that Jesus has put them on. Now, the problem with the lake, you think, well, what? what? This is just fantastic. It, it is. The problem, however, is because it's surrounded by hills or mountains, one side's a plateau, the Golan Heights look right down onto it, the winds that will come onto this lake to this day are just amazing. They're sounding. They're surprising continuously. You would think that this small little lake could not really come up with, come on, how bad could the weather be? You know, this is not that big a lake. Mm. Yep, come to find out because uh, particularly on the western side of the lake, there's a gap. If you're standing there and, you're, and you can look, on the western end of the lake, there's a gap. Well, the Mediterranean, 30 miles away, you know, there are prevailing winds because of the spin of the earth. The prevailing winds tend to come from the west, and they do. And when they get there, because there's mountainous regions, but there is one gap, one of the directions that the wind strongly comes from is right there. And it comes in clear day. You can have a total clear day, not a cloud in the sky, no storm looking weather at all, and the next thing you know, the wind lands like you can hardly believe. And before you know it, you've got four-foot swells and six-foot swells, and occasionally, ten-foot swells. Another place the winds can come from, particularly at night, the sun goes down, well, all that cold air off Mount Hermon comes rolling down. Nothing to stop it. And it can land on the lake. And, of course, the lake is warm. 
It's got a completely different temperature, and that can stir up the lake. So the winds don't just come from the west, they come from the north. And the next thing you know, the waves are not orderly at all. The waves are coming from every different direction all over the place. And the wind is coming from all over the place. And the next thing you know, here we are. We have this huge storm. Now, Luke is writing his gospel to help us understand who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Is he just a great teacher? He's just a good guy. Is he just a guy who knows his Old Testament pretty well and gets up and preaches some really good sermons from the Old Testament and seems to have a really good insight into the spirit of the law and how that all goes? Is that all Jesus is? Is he just another prophet, another good guy who can say nice things, or is he actually something else? This account is in here to help us recognize that Jesus is not just a great teacher. Now, Luke has presented that Jesus can heal disease. That's good. He can heal illness. That's pretty amazing. He can give sight to the blind. He can take the lame, and he can take the guy with a withered hand, and all he's got to do is stretch it forward, and his hand is restored. Jesus can go to funerals, stop the procession, and get the person whose funeral it is to get up and Walk away. Wow. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Jesus commands the demons. They obey. Jesus says it. They do it. When Jesus goes to the disciples who are in the lake and they're fishing and they haven't caught a thing, he's like, well, cash in on the other side. If you think about that, it's like, does it really matter which side of the boat we throw the net over? I mean, really? Uh, when Jesus tells you, it sure does. You throw the net on the side he tells you to, and the fish are going to jump into that thing, which, of course, they do. But the weather, now, the weather, I mean, really? Can anybody really control the weather? You know, it's interesting. The Caesars said they could control the weather. We have people in Congress who want to tell us they can control the weather. We've been known to have presidents who tell us that if you vote for them that, you know, the oceans will go down and... The earth will heal. Um, yeah, it's all nice. It's, it's, it's good. But anybody really, really control the weather? Really? If you start thinking about the weather, the weather is, the weather is ruled by enormous forces. The entire globe is one weather system. So if you're going to change the weather, you have to change the whole globe. The sun controls the weather. Sunspots control the weather. Volcanoes can suddenly launch off. A number of winters that have gone over the summer, that we've had summers with no summer at all. It never gets above very high. Why? Because some massive volcano has lit off somewhere and basically just cooled the entire earth for a couple of years. We don't have control over that. Who's going to are well, you going to go plug some volcano? All right, you don't go off anymore. We, we don't have the power to do that. We don't have the power to control the weather. You can sit up and say you do. Well, good for you. But like somebody said, right, everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Who in the world could possibly control the weather? You can't. Or can you? It would actually take God to control the weather. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so we look at this event 
And the person in the boat, we'll see when we get to the, we'll get to it here in just a second. So Jesus says to them, all right, let's get in the boat. Let's sail the other side. So they're probably in the northwest corner, and they've got to sail all the way across. It's, you know, they've probably got to make a, at least seven and a half, seven-mile journey. They're sailing over kind of in the middle of the other side. So they're out in the lake. It may very well be, although we know that, that Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we know because they've said, we fished all night and haven't caught anything. They probably, because they know the weather and they know how this lake is, they probably don't spend the middle of the night out in the middle of the lake. They kind of stay somewhere near shore in case something exciting happens, and there's plenty of fish. I mean, the lake's about 150 feet deep, and you don't have to get very far out there to where you can catch the fish. So this is, we're going to actually sail across this lake. Jesus says, let's go. This is where I want you to go. Of course, he's got a divine appointment over there, too. And then he goes into the back of the boat, and lays down and goes to sleep with a little pillow, whatever in the world that thing's made out of. But he's got a pillow. He's, Jesus is out. Now, we tend to think of Jesus, well, this is God. And it is. And sometimes we think, well, he's not really a man. But he is. Jesus is exhausted. Jesus has been teaching and preaching and interacting with people for a long time now, to the point, you will recall, that his mom has got his brothers to come, and they're like, hey, your mother and brothers are outside, and they would like to basically get you out of, you're not sleeping, you're not apparently eating, you're not, we need to get you back home. I mean, you are just exhausting yourself, and I think Jesus did work to the point of exhaustion. He prayed all night occasionally. He, he got up early in the morning and prayed. I think he stayed up late. Jesus needs sleep, just like all of us. He has a real live human body that you can only push that thing so far, and you need to go to sleep. Jesus needed to sleep, and so he does. He may be God, but he's also in a human body, a real live human body, the real thing, just like these, just like ours. And so the disciples, you know, they're, they're sailing along here, and Jesus is back there, sound asleep. Now suddenly, a fierce gale of wind descends upon the lake. It either comes down off the Mediterranean, or it comes down off the mountains, but because the lake's in the bottom of a bowl, the wind comes down onto the lake. And as soon as it gets down there it just kicks up these huge waves. And of course, they come from all different kinds of directions. It's not like you can, you know, if there's swells, you can point at them and, you know, the front end goes up. And, but if they're just coming from every different direction, there's no, there's no way to know. There's no way to know which direction to go in. And the next thing you know, they're slamming on the side of the boat and the back of the boat and the front of the boat. and every, They're coming in from everywhere. And Jesus, by the way, is just back there soundly sleeping through it all. He's, he hasn't. He hasn't woke up at all. So here they are in this boat. These are professional fishermen. These are guys. This is probably Peter's boat. I mean, he knows this boat, and he knows the lake, and he also knows this isn't good. If you've ever been in a boat, um, some of the more modern boats, they, you can't sink them. But if you've ever been in one of these boats that, you know, as soon as you get some water in that thing, the boat suddenly, particularly a sailboat, it suddenly becomes kind of sluggish. I mean, you've got a bunch of water in it. 
So it doesn't respond as quite as quickly to the directions you're giving it. Even if you point the sail and, and turn the till and try to get the rudder the other way because, and the water is sloshing around in there, and the next thing you know, more water comes in there, and it doesn't take very much. You don't have to be like two professional fishermen to, or, or a sailor to figure out, you know, if this keeps up, we are going to be dead in the water. We, we're going to get to the place where we can't make this boat go in any direction at all at which point we are clearly just at the mercy of the wind and the waves. Okay, well, they are on their way to that. And the water is coming in over the boat, and they are threatened to be swamped. Every gallon of water that comes into your boat makes it sink just that little bit lower. And the lower it sinks, the harder it is to do anything with it. And, you know, you can grab the buckets and go at it all you want, but if it's just coming over the... All right, so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? If Peter and Andrew and James and John are panicking, we're panicking. I mean, if these guys don't know what to do and it's their boat and they've done this a lot, we are in serious trouble here. So they go to Jesus and they wake him up. What's Jesus doing? He's back there sleeping. (laughs) He's sleeping. So they go back and they wake him up. And, and they came to him, and they said, Master, Master, we're perishing. Now, what's interesting is we have three accounts. And in the three accounts, we have, we have here in Luke, they call him Master, Master. In Mark, they say, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And Matthew has, uh, it's Lord, Lord. So, which is it? Is it Master? Is it Lord? Is it teacher? Oh, it's all of them. There's chaos reigning here. I mean, everybody is like, huh, get a hold of Jesus. And one guy's saying this and one guy's saying that. And there's no contradiction here. The account is accurate. Everybody is in a panic. They actually say to him, don't you care that we're, we're perishing? So Jesus wakes up, aroused, out of his sleep, like, Guys, you know, I mean, come on, I'm finally getting some sleep here. What? We're dying. Really? Seriously? You guys think, you think I'm going to let you die? Really? You've got to be kidding me. Where is your faith? Are you, are you not paying any attention at all to who you have in this boat? Has it not yet occurred to you? I am not going to let us all drown. I, just, I got things I need to do, don't you? Yeah, no. No, actually, they, they don't. They don't understand, and they're panicked, and they come to Jesus, and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Mark actually says... The the actual words he uses is, hush, be still. And immediately, the wind stops. Now, you might think, well, you know, I mean, okay, well, the wind, you know, the the wind just started out in the middle of nowhere, and now the wind just stops. Okay, well, it might just be good timing. But it's not just the wind. It's not just the wind. It's the waves. Mark says that it became, uh, Luke says it became calm. Mark says it became perfectly calm. So we went from swells that are big enough to swamp this boat to a dead 
Still Lake. Now, stop and think for a second exactly how much power it takes. The, just think of the horsepower, the amount of work to get all of that wind going. What kind of fans you'd have to, if, if we're like, well, we're going to produce that. Really? Okay, if you're going to produce that, just how big a fan and just how many of them are you going to have to stick up here on the shore to blow into this lake to get this thing going to the point where it's ready to swamp one of these boats? Just think about jet engines. I don't care what you got going here. You are going to have to have some pretty amazing horsepower to get the lake going like that. And once you get these waves going, tell me exactly how are you going to get them to stop? How are you going to get all of these waves to just poof? Could you even do that? Of course you couldn't. Even if you stop the wind, the waves slosh back and forth. I mean, put your bathtub, fill it up with water, push your hand in it, and watch. The waves go, and they bounce. Okay, this lake is just, how did he make it dead calm? Well, because he's God. Only God could possibly do this. Only God. Because it doesn't just stop the wind. They go to a glass calm. Which, by the way, the lake does often, and generally in the morning, you get up and you look, and the, the lake is just like a sea of glass, until the sun comes up, and the wind gets going, and then it starts all over again. Jesus, middle of the night, just turns this thing into a sheet of glass. And then he looks at them, and he says, where in the world is your faith. Aren't you guys paying attention at all? Aren't you reading your Old Testament? Aren't you paying attention to what your Old Testament says? My goodness, don't... I'm the Messiah, and you guys all kind of, more or less, say that you believe that, although Peter hasn't actually made his great profession of faith just yet. He will in the next chapter. But they're following because they think Jesus is something special here from God. Um, Psalm 65, starting verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. The one who by his strength establishes the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumults of the people. So that those who dwell in the end of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out in the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide grain and you have prepared it. God is in charge of the water. God can still the raging waves. Psalm 98, 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Lord. With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. You think that the disciples aren't familiar with those passages? Haven't you guys been reading your old time? Of course they have. They've been going to the synagogue their whole lives. Can't you connect the dots, guys? Can't you put, where is your faith? I am here as God's representative Psalm 107, 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. 
For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men who were at their wits' ends. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Hmm, Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They were glad the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. This directly applies to Jesus. Luke includes this account so that as we read this, we go, okay, if God became a man and lived on this earth and these events occurred, this is what God would do. I mean, it says it right there. Psalm 107. Just go to it. If Jesus ever found himself in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a sea, and he were God, he would obviously have the ability to calm the waves. Uh Uh-huh. And that's exactly what he does. And the disciples... They should have thought about this. If you're going to be the Messiah, if you're going to come and you're going to actually lay claim to being the Messiah of God, there's all you have to reverse the curse. You have to come to this world and you have to have power over it. You're going to make the lion lay down with the lamb and you're going to make the lion eat grass like the ox. You're going to allow the children to play around the nests of the rattlesnakes and the ass. You, when the day comes, you're going to have to change the earth and the topography of the earth. Hosea says this in 2.21, It will come about on that day, the day of the Lord, that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain and to the new wine and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who had not had compassion, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The mountains are going to drip with honey, right? The hills will be dissolved. The wilderness will be glad, and Arabia will blossom like the crocus. The hills will shout for joy. It will flow with milk and honey. If if you're going to believe Jesus is the Messiah, you're going to believe that he has the power to rule the earth. And he does. But when it actually happens, it says that as this event occurs, Jesus looks at him, where's your faith? And the place just turns dead still. They were fearful And amazed and said to one another, who then is this? Who in the world is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Mark says they became very much afraid, mega afraid, terrified. They were just scared of the storm. They were just scared that they were going to perish. The storm scared them. Jesus terrified them. God in the boat was worse than the storm outside of the boat. They were suddenly confronted with omnipotence. We like to convince ourselves that we're kind of in charge of our lives, that we have the ability to make choices, and that we're a little bit in charge. 
Surely we're in charge of our own house, we're in charge of our car, and, and, and to suddenly discover that, you know what, we're really not all that in charge at all. And that God actually has the power to rule the waves, and to rule the weather, and to rule the wind. And we just woke up omnipotence. He stood up and just with a word turned this raging sea into a dead calm. Now we're seriously terrified. What in the world else is this guy capable of? He literally has our lives in his hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, actually he does. So let's stop for a minute and think about what this story is actually telling us. There's some clear things we we should recognize because it's going to help us with our lives. What are they doing in the boat? Why in the world are they in the boat in the middle of this, of this lake in the middle of the night anyway? Oh, oh, well, because Jesus told them to. They were there by the direct command of Jesus. He said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Well, wait a minute. You don't mean to tell me God is actually going to take us deliberately into storms, is he? What do you think? That's exactly what this passage is showing. They need to understand who it is they're dealing with. They need to understand who Jesus is. And in order to get that understanding, he's going to take them out of their security, out of their safety, out of the place that they're comfortable, and he's going to put them into a place where they are vulnerable, where they are uncomfortable where they are not in charge, they are not in control, and circumstances just seem to be completely overwhelming them. And they, instead of responding in faith, respond with panic. Jesus is like, what? why didn't you just wake me up and say, hey, Jesus, would you still this storm? Because we know who you are, and we know you had the power to do it. And by the way, you might want to do it quick, because if you don't, the boat is going to sink. And, well, I suppose even if the boat sank, we could probably all walk on the water, I, I, you know, I guess. But it'd be better if we didn't have to do it. You, you, right? It's kind of like when Jesus says to them, where are we going to get the food to feed all these folks? Well, I don't know. We sure don't have enough money for that. I mean... My goodness, if we had whatever amount of money it was, it wouldn't be enough. Plus, we'd have to run into town, and I don't think... Why didn't somebody just go, you know what? You are the same God who fed all those children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. How about you just make manna and give it to them? Yeah. No one thinks that? No one concludes that? Yep, no one. Nobody. It's like it's not even crossing their mind. Jesus is deliberately bringing these people into this set of circumstances to make them pray to him, to make them come to him. So if you're sitting in a set of circumstances in your life at this moment where you are driven to your knees to come to God, well, by all means, get on your knees and go to God. That's why he's got you there. And don't think that he's somehow mad at you. Jesus isn't mad at his disciples. He's, you know, it's... It's like, look, we had this set of circumstances. And by the way, get in the boat, and I am just exhausted. I'm going to go sleep here in the back of the boat. And um, I'm just going to, you know, I'm not, I'm going to leave you all to your own devices. I I just, you guys just go do what you're going to do. And when the storm shows up, let's just see how you react to that. So don't expect God to necessarily be right there holding your hand. You might actually feel somewhat alone. You're not. You're not. God's with you. 
He's just waiting for you to come and ask him, oh, Lord, will you please rescue us? And he will. Jesus is not just a great teacher here. He is God in the flesh. He has the ability to calm the storms in our life. He's with us. He hasn't left us. All things work together for good to those who love God. Love God and just ride out the storms. Sometimes there's storms in our lives. Ride the storms. It's okay. They're there because God wants them to be there. He's not mad at us. He's not, he doesn't hate us. He's not pouring out his wrath on us. It's just his, we're in this world. And sometimes there's storms. Trust God. Cry out to God. And he may or may not calm the storm. You know, I mean, you may, you may discover that some storms just kind of keep sloshing you around for a while. And that's okay, too. And if the worst comes, you get out of the boat and walk in the water, right? I mean, God is able to do whatever he needs to do for us. Just trust God. This is, Jesus is trying to get his disciples to trust him. Where's your faith? Who do you think I am? Because if you thought about that for a moment, you'd realize that you didn't have to get all panicked. God's in charge. And so just pray to him and trust him. And whatever happens, happens. If you end up getting out of this life, well, you get out of this life. It's okay. The next one's better. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for this account clearly presented here so that we can see that it's not going to be unusual for there to be storms in our life. It may very well happen. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't left us. You're not mad at us. You simply want us to trust you more. May we strive to do that. If the storms of our life are perhaps raging at this moment, may we just come back to you and say, Lord, we, we need some help. We believe that you will do the thing that needs to be done. And we're here to ask. We believe you are able to accomplish things beyond our imagining. And so we come and ask that you would help us, that you would watch over us, that you would give us strength we need to make it through the storms. We know you're faithful. We know you love us. And may we continue to just trust you. May we show our faith by continuing to serve you even in the storms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.